It is with a very wide open heart that I bring you this very, very special edition of the Independent Life Podcast, bringing to you Dr. Jacob Atem. He is somebody that I am honored to call as a friend. Jacob is from Sudan, and he is a survivor of the civil war and genocide that occurred there. He came to the United States under a program that brought in refugees from the civil war over here to live in the United States. And you may have heard of the Lost Boys. And it was a name that was dubbed to this group of refugees who parents and family were slaughtered. And these refugees were fleeing the violence of the Civil War and were traveling literally thousands of miles and just trying to survive day by day, hour by hour, and minute by minute. Not just from, a, from an enemy that wanted nothing more than to uh, exterminate them, but from disease and all the challenges of living in refugee camps, internment camps. His journey is a 10-year journey in this time of walking, which he walked thousands of miles. We're going to be breaking this up into two episodes because, you know, he has a very important story that is his life. And in that story is a journey. And we unpack the journey in the first episode very intentionally and meticulously and with some great detail about his life before the Civil War came to him and when it did, and subsequently the 10 years after in his experiences in which became dubbed as the Lost Boys. It's going to take us to when he came to the United States, to a foster family, and enters into his experiences as an American. In episode two, we're going to unpack those experiences that he has in the United States and how it really maps on to disability. Disability that he experienced while he was surviving genocide, his experiences into understanding disability here in the United States, and how his experiences kind of can really help him better understand some of the challenges that those of us that have disabilities have. I got to say, Jacob is somebody that his presence, uh, his ability to, to still love to forgive, to move on, to want to serve others through being through everything that he has been through, it's transformative. I, I really feel that when I'm ever in his presence, it's um, very illuminating. And I hope you can really sense that and get the, out of that what I'm able to experience whenever I encounter him. He's been somebody that has uh, been able to tell his story in many different arenas. In TED Talks, he's spoken to the United Nations. He's been in the present presence of presidents of the United States. He's just true, truly remarkable. The fact that he came here surviving genocide at 15 years old to the United States, did not speak the language, did not read the language, could not write the language, and somehow, some way, got himself graduated. And the journey beyond that to even go down to college and to grad school and to get his PhD 
is fully remarkable and is a good example to those of us that have disabilities and those of us who do not about the, the power and the endurance of the human spirit. I hope you take a lot out of this. It's truly an honor to sit down with him anytime, but especially for him to come in and to record an episode with here on The Independent Life. Enjoy. So Jacob, it is like surreal right now sitting across the table from you and being here after, I think we've known each other for 12 years, right yes. about, yeah. Um, so I remember who brought us together, the Buckleys, Yes. Taryn and Dante, wonderful people. Correct. I don't remember exactly the first time we connected or, or you know, exactly how we met though. Do you? Yes, it was Taryn. Yeah. First through the College of Human and yeah, Health human, and Human Performance. Health and human yeah, performance. That, that was That's the college I, I was first in. First, met you at yeah. at the college. Yeah, HHP. HHP. Yeah. And then health and human later on, we met at Dante, and the rest becoming yeah. yeah history. Yeah, yeah, and and it's so good to reconnect with you. I, I know we haven't been in touch for uh, a few years, and then. No coincidence, you and I ran into each other about a month ago where our kids were playing in a trampoline park and, and there's me uh, trying to yuck it up with the kids and uh, I get pegged in the face by a, a ball in the dodgeball. That was Sammy, my son. <laughs> my hat comes flying off and, and, and I see this figure from the corner of my eye standing up, obviously a parent to correct this kid, but I was like, no, 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 it's all good. I'm in, I'm in the battle zone and, and it happened to be you. And, yes. and, and I think... It's a God incident, you know, not a coincidence. Yes, it, it was. Together again. It was uh, my son I tried to correct. and uh, No way. You, I, yeah. you have this gift, Tony, of knowing the voices. The, the moment I said, Sammy, Sammy, why are you doing this? He's like, no, 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 you're okay. We're like, is that Jacob? I remember <laughs> that. So that was great. It was at Defy yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> this yeah, it's year. Been a few years, yeah. And so I want to take us through the beginning of your story and your journey to present day. And then uh, we can talk a lot about how there's a lot of similarities that we can talk about related to <clears throat> disability and running nonprofits and everything else like that. In beginning your story, you know, you come from Southern Sudan. Um, I wondered if you could, you know, talk about what your country was like as you were a child. Hmm. You know, the earliest years that you remember, what do you remember about your country and about your childhood, you know, before the journey really began? Well, thank you, Tony. Good question. So <clears throat> I grew up in what they called back then Sudan. And Sudan gained its independence in 1956, so January 1st, 1956. Sudan originally was actually colonized by the, by the UK, by the British. And so from 1956 right after the independent really sudan was got itself into civil war prior to that there was been constant wars but since the independent the first war is what they call the nyanya one which is the first war mm -hmm. it was basically from 1956 to 72 okay 
and in 72, <clears throat> it was essentially based on the South versus North Sudan. Mm -hmm. And the war, there's different version of it, but there were many, many factors that in, including religion, including the marginalized people in the Sudan in general, regardless of your faith, mm -hmm. and including, you know, resources, uh, uh, particularly in the southern part, it predominantly has an oil-rich oil component to it. Northern part, they were elite, and they were the one that really were given the power by the British. Mm. So in 72, in 56 to 72, that war really uh, came to an end when they have something they call the Addis Ababa Agreement. Addis Ababa is the capital city of, of Ethiopia. So they had that peace agreement saying, okay, we will have the same government and maybe trying to have some representative leaders from the southern part. Mm -hmm. Although there was some division, there was some remnants of the Anyanya one, which is the first war that didn't really fully were buy into the real peace deal in Khartoum. So anyway, they have the peace deal, and from 72 to 82, really what I call the peaceful years of Sudan. That's the time that there was a peaceful time, only for 10 years, really. What year were you born? So it's estimated, and I'll come to it later, that I was born in 86. Okay. But this, what's on the record, we were not really don't know how exactly the date and the year I was born because of we are not born in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so some people estimated to maybe either 85 or 86, just people remember the year, but they don't really because of lack of literacy back then. Okay. They just remember what happened that year. For right. example, we all know the tragic event throughout the history. If I said September 11, uh -huh. people, that year people remember that's when it's 2001, 2001 when, yeah. when the major event happened. So we know things through the major event. events. Like, okay. So it's between 85, 86, there around okay. that area. But you had peace from 72 to 82. So peace, uh, yeah. 72 to 82. But then there was this gentleman, his name is Dr. John Garang, who he came to the U.S., and he studied agriculture, went to Iowa State, but he was a young boy, or let's just say he was a captain during the first Civil War, which is 72, I mean 56 to 72. He was a young boy. And Dr. Garang has a vision and realized he's from South Sudan, happened to be from my county, uh, which is East in Jongle State, South Sudan. Dr. Garang study the history and he was into economics and I think he joined the US military mm -hmm. here around 81 <clears throat> he went back to Khartoum to be a lecturer but in 83 that's where we have what we call the second civil war that's the SPLA SPLM civil war the Sudan people liberation army that's the military side 
of the military wing. You have Sudan People's Liberation Movement. That's the political uh, wing, and it was being led by Dr. John Gane, the Mabur. And he has an interesting vision. He was saying that Sudan is too deformed to be reformed. And he was now like saying that he's fighting this war because he's a Christian. No, he was saying there's too much marginalizing, uh, too many people being marginalized in general, including the Muslim or the Christian in the South. That war of 83 is very significant. That's the war that not only did I lose my relative, 2.5 million people died from 1983 to 2005. And these people died due to many reasons. It's not just in, in front line. It's when either the village is attacked or you are in what they call internally displaced camp where you lack you know, water, essential, shelter. Or when you start walking to a neighboring country to become a refugee. So you, you are really, many people were killed by Starvation, obviously uh, a gun wound, obviously lack of water uh, sometime when you are walking. So the timeline is very important for us. That's why I was saying that 1983. I grew up, you asked me about what it was like to grow up. So before the Civil War, I, um, I love cows. I love to... In today's modern world, they call it being a hurt man. So I was a hurt man, or you say the hurt boy. So I grew up in a place called Jongle State, in a small village called Mar. Mar is actually not that far from the uh, White Nile, uh, Nile River. <clears throat> so we are literally outside of the Nile and Mar, and we live in a swampy area, just like Florida. It's like <laughs> swampy. Sure. And the typical job, normally, is divided. It's like a, a division of labor, okay? So we are more considered to be what they call nomadic society, the nomads, meaning we, we move with our cattle to where we can find water, grass, and a place for them to, to do grazing. Mm-hmm. And so often either we go toward the east of the Nile or near the Nile, Nile is toward the east of us, or go toward the west, which is away from the Nile, to look for cattle. However, they, the village doesn't change. So the village is stationary. You can cultivate, you can do that, but what is changing is your cattle. You've got to find where there's a pasture. I'm telling you, Tony, it was a beautiful life. Like, I, I, people have sometimes stereotype about Africa, but it was a beautiful life because our job is, 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 is written out to us. Of course, we didn't go to school mm-hmm. back then, but for me as a young boy around six or seven, I would be responsible to look after the cattle, especially oh. the calf. So, and then you have the, the heifers or the bull or the bigger cows, and you have to divide them into two, the, the calf and the older cows, including the bulls. Mm-hmm. 
Now, if it is your, so we have we have what we call the cattle camp. In Dinka, it's called Wut, W-U-T. Wut is cattle camp. So, and let me put it into perspective. The cattle camp could be just the entire city of Gainesville. It depends on your wealth. So the more cows you have, the more wealth you have. Mm. The more wife you may have because it's a polygamous society mm-hmm. where you they they allowed you to have more than one wife so you your wealth is really is measured by the amount of cows you have and that could determine how many wives how many children mm-hmm. so it was a beautiful culture before the civil war and so what i love the most is when i would take the calf along the Nile, the, the bank of the Nile, to get the water. And then, you know, what boys do uh, here in America now, they, you may ask them, like, what do you do for fun? Say we play Mario Kart, a <laughs> video game. But our fun was we look after the cattle. Our fun is, but it come with some, some uh, serious uh, responsibility. Right. Because think about it, the food of source of food food is milk and cow itself. So each cattle camp, like let's say my family had, uh, I had a, a stepbrother that is older than me. So he would be responsible for the older, the, the, the heifer, the, the older uh, cows. I would be responsible for the calf. So the first batch of the cows to be let go to grazing are the older cows. So you have to go opposite. So if the cows this time, they're gonna graze toward the west, then they go toward the west. That means the calf has to go the opposite toward the east. And you can know why that. Because you don't want your calf Mm -hmm. and your cows to mix because they will suck all the milk out of their mothers. And guess what, somebody is not getting food tonight. And so we'll bring the food from home, and then you have the calf with the cows, and you milk the cows, and you put them together. And it was a usual. I think later in life, as I think through my journey, there were a lot of lessons that I, I'm grateful. I have learned that sense of responsibility early on. It mm-hmm. became very, very helpful in my journey of tracking later, because. That responsibility, I remember, in today modern society, they may think it's child abuse, but if I didn't pay attention and let the calf mix with the cows that was suck all the milk, I would actually get whipping. Mm. And so on that, the Nile was full of of, of resources like fish, mm-hmm. turtles, and different type of fish like the mudfish and all this. So. We became acquainted to, to the environment. We know what to eat. Yeah. We know what not to eat. And again, those skill set at early age, I used to hit them, but they become handy yeah. later. So that was the beautiful life we had. Unfortunately, that was really disrupted, at least for me, at age six or seven. That's one thing I remember. Okay. My family was not... Uh, I, I guess you would consider us as middle class here. Okay. We were not too rich with cows, but we, we 
my dad and my my family, I remember they, they do cultivation a lot, mm-hmm. like especially with sorghum. And the way to get that is depend on your siblings. So here's my family lineage. My dad was married to two wives. So in in American term, I guess you would say that I have a step sibling and step um, mother, but. To us, we, we don't differentiate. We should mm-hmm. just say a brother is a br- brother, or I would consider her my mother. Gotcha. There's no like half or three quarters. We just say yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a brother. So on my brother's side, no, on my stepmother's side, her name was Alangdit. The older son's his name is Atem. Unfortunately, Atem was a very young, energetic young man and I heard he he's a singer. He so the way some traditional dinkas do is the cow you have depend what type of a cow you will sing. You're a singer, just you will compose songs for that particular what we call the the bull, depend what type of bull does it have, black or white. So I heard my brother Tim was uh, he has this big bull called Billock. And you have to see, even when the calf, when the, when the bull is being born, you can tell how beautiful it is. And you have to shape, we call it nut, which is you make the horn like this, but you have to shape the horn at early age to the way you want it. Do you want it to, most, most of them like this, mm-hmm. or do you want it this? It depends how you want to shape it. It's like playing with your... Um, like like a mud cow and you just you just you can shave the cow's horn how you want it and that is a sense of pride and normally if you have a gift of singing you will compose a song about that particular bull we say mior marial which is has the, the the bull that has different colors like black and white black and white black and white like that it's it's the beautiful one so that was his that was my first son on my stepmother's side then you have Madel, which I will tell you about his story later. Unfortunately, he was killed in the war as a captain. And I learned so much from him also throughout different IDP camp. And he, he joined the SPLA, Sudan People Liberation Army, with Dr. Garang. And he was a captain, and he died in the war. Then I have another uh, sister, a one, um, and, and she's still alive. And then I have... Another sister from my, these are my um, step-sibling. Her name is Atit. And then I have my step-brother, uh, his name Yai, who is now the chief of my clan in, uh, in Jongle. And so that's my step-mother's side. On my mother's side, we had my older brother is Gabriel who is happened to be now in Australia, a lost boy there. Then my sister, which I will tell you soon, that since last Sunday that I was connected with her after 32 years, Ayen I was following her, and then I'm the third. I think there's a, there's a fourth child, but died died at early age. So life was beautiful until when the... Northerners, this, we call them the Sudan Armed Forces, SAF. 
and the ally start marching toward the south and start conquering all of the villages, the town, the major town, wherever the Sudan People Liberation Army is, SPLA, SPLM, uh, with Dr. Garan. They have the weapon, you name them. They have Antinope, which is a different type of aircraft. They have machinery. They have all the military hardware you can think. They have infantry. So basically, since 1983, the war started between Dr. Garang and them, and they were trying to conquer. When I say they, the Sudan armed forces were trying to ca capture and captured all of the southern part. Now, what is interesting, I don't have a map here to show you, but if you remember, Sudan is up north. I mean, Khartoum is up north, and they go down south toward the Uganda border, toward the Kenyan border, toward literally the southern part. And each time they conquer each, uh, each village, each town, now you have displaced people, either to be in IDP camp or they would have to be walking or be forced to a different country, which they become what we call the refugee. By the time they came to me, and other thing, this was the birth of the Lost Boys of Sudan. And the Lost Boys here, the word Lost Boys is used loosely. It came from what they call Peter Pan's. If you watch the Peter Pan's movie, these are the boys who didn't have parents and they grew up by themselves. And that was affectional, I believe. Well, ours was real. But the way the Lost Boy came is, it depends how close are you to the north part, northern part. So if your village is there and get attacked, you now start marching toward the south for safety. So I'm in the middle. Mar and Jongle is in the middle. So I just want to put it into perspective. By the time the enemy start attacking systematically from up north down south, I'll give you an example. There were some lost boys who walked just from, depending where they at in the border, just to get to my village. It's nine months. Some of the lost boys walk that. So it depends how close you are, of course, as the enemy was conquering and chasing people either being IDP camp or being in a neighboring country of Ethiopia, Kenya, or, or South Sudan, uh, Ethiopia. Or sometimes you go to Khartoum itself and be IDP there. And then later on, I'll tell you the second part where the diaspora either go to in this, into Egypt and then make their own way to Egypt, and to Middle East, and then to Sudan. And then later on, people who are in refugee camp in Kenya, like us, make their way to the U.S. But to follow the devastation of what happened, when the attack happened, I was really, really young. So I don't have a lot of memories. But the memory I have was um, at that time, they, there seemed to be a disagreement between Dr. Garang and his deputy at that time. And his duty has changed allegiance to Khartoum. And that duty has its own tribe. Uh, he was from a tribe called Nuer. And we are from the Dinka with, with Dr. Garang. So to stab Dr. Garang for whatever their political disagreement, he and his tribemen mobilized a massive and tried to march toward 
where Dr. Garang people are, which would be us. It's in the Yongle area, which is composed of Twitch, East County, Duke, and, uh, and Boer. And it became known as the Boer Massacre, basically. And when they start marching, that's where they take all the cattle and murdering a lot, a lot of people. And these were the disgruntled politician that has a disgruntled problem with Dr. Garang Chen allegiance to what we call SAF, which is under Bashir, President Bashir back then. In this war, what I have personal witness is where not only the parents and everybody was killed, my own sister and two of my nieces were captured in front of me. And they were taken, which is, I will tell you later on the more detail on the reunification of them since last Sunday that I was able to, to know them. But the problem with this is now some lost boys were either walking to Ethiopia, walking within the South Sudan, or walking to Uganda, and walk to to Kenya. So I was literally, I spent almost three or four IDP camps just going around. And my sister, my niece, and a lot of people were captured by the, unfortunately, people who were allied to the, to the Sudan Armed Forces. So just to kind of um, get a point of order on this, now you're have talked a lot about how you grew up raising cattle, and now the SAF mm -hmm. is uh, moving from the north to the south. They've come to encounter you, and in doing so, yes. uh, violence is breaking out. There's massacres occurring. Yes. Your sister and other relatives were abducted in front of you, and you're fleeing, you're fleeing for your life yes. at this point, and you're Becoming what will be come to known as the Lost Boys, a group of um, yes. boys that yes. parents have been and relatives and family members have been slaughtered and are, are wa walking together to, to flee uh, this violence. Yes, and a lot. I mean, when I say a lot of properties were lost, a lot of lives were lost at this massacre. And you're right, as we walk, people were just walk at the disarray. At their own, like um, I don't have a lot of ton of memory. To I walk a lot. I mean, you could almost touch all the corners of going to Ethiopia, to Kenya, to Uganda. It's like become a circle. You just keep moving as the enemy is following you. You're just trying to go for safety. So, like my brothers and others, really move toward Ethiopia. But I came toward Ethiopia. I was so young, but it's staying at the border. How young were you when you started this, this march? I was about, literally, about six, I'd say six or seven. And how many of you in the group that you were oh, there walking was, with? There was a ton. There yeah. was a lot who were living with either you separated from your fam family. There was a lot, like, totally, it's it got to be around a lot of people, like 30,000 people who were traveling and then with different direction, of course, either uh -huh. you, wherever you can find safety in within South Sudan or in Ethiopia, in Kenya, and in Uganda. But it's interestingly, most of us ended up living in these either K-12 
camps, but most of us ended up in a Kekuma refugee camp there. But I want to tell our audience that the walk was not easy. So it, you got the enemy on your back. You You're got literally the enemy? fearing for your life that they might catch up with you. What yeah. else? And you were, what to eat, you know. Uh, I remember where we were just surrounded by the enemy, how my sister and my niece were captured is the attack happened at 1 a.m. And we hid near the Nile. So, so there was like, a, there was this small island next, literally next to the Nile. So we hid there. And at that time, we took, uh, there was some food, which is including uh, powder milk. We had the powder milk. And we have a little bit of sesame. But what happened is from 1 a.m. to the next 1 p.m., we, we really didn't have food. So what we did is there was a young lady, uh, uh, there was a lady, and there was a, a child was crying. So she went, got some, some water, uh, some milk, and came back, and I just had this terrible feeling. I said, maybe you shouldn't go again. And then she's like, what, what, what do I do? The child is crying. So she went back, and on her way back, unfortunately, the enemy now saw her. And so we are toward the Nile. So literally, here's the Nile, and here's this island. And the, the, little, the little place that you can walk onto it is where the enemy came. So the enemy saw her, and they shot at her, and they shot her on the hip. She fell down. One, now she has given away our position. So they came and started talking in local language. So I freaked, personally, I freaked out. Didn't know what to do. And I actually jumped into the Nile. And I was hanging on to the reefs, the reefs of the, the, the two reefs, like two little reefs where I'm holding here and holding there, and I'm like literally going up and down drowning, up and down drowning. And I don't know why those little thing that I was handing on to didn't let go. By God's grace, I don't remember after today, this guy holding me one hand and throw me into a more of a, an island in the, on the top of the, 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 the island. And then I remember my step mother step on me and try to protect me well it was too late the enemy were already here and i remember where they step on my head so i give up so i was captured a lot of people were captured there were few people i think might have ak but i'm glad they didn't shoot because we would have been dead but the other men which i was surprised they would they know how to swim they would go down and literally swim into the nile so we got captured, and that time I'm still, I was hi hiding with my sister and my two nieces. Of course, I got captured now, I'm uh, my, what I call my God uniform. And as they taken us, there was a lot of people, they were giving older people like um, bullet to carry. It was me, by God's grace, it was me and my stepmother that were let go. I don't know why they were complaining. There was two people who were really debating. 
whether I should, they said, a boy will revenge, so why don't we kill him? But anyway, they let us go. From that point on, it was difficult to cook, so I remember I came back, and that's how they know some Dinka also, the enemy. So they came back, and I left my nie- my sister and my niece. To me, I think I was the only one captured. But they came and talked in Dinka and said, hey, come back. We are your brothers and sisters that just went and came back. Well, from what I have heard, my sister came like thinking, oh, that's Jacob. They came back. And then she was pointing at the gunpoint. And that's how they were captured, which I will tell you later, 32 years ago. But I became, what I have learned in that cattle came became very handy how to hide, how to find certain food, how to live in the <coughs> excuse me, in the wilderness. For example, cooking. We cannot cook in the open. The enemy will see, right, with smoke. So we learn quickly to dig the um, the fire pit really little some meters downstairs, down the ground. And so when you cook, really, the smoke is not coming up as, as light as mm-hmm. it is. And with, with that, I still remember they would come and capture us. And I told myself, I remember, I would just run. I said, I'm not going to be captured again. At one point, second time they came, I have an uncle. His name is Abundit. When they came, me and Abundit ran. And this guy literally had us at the gunpoint. But my uncle had this big cross. He has, and this guy was so scared. He didn't kill us because of the cross. So as a young man, every time I see where my uncle is is hiding, I will always hide with him. But anyway, fast forward, they they came with a uh, bomb too, with the antinope. It's an old Russian maid, which can just hover over us. And you can see and people get killed easily. All these things happen, on, and, and, and every time we move, you either get killed until the enemy was repulsed back by the SPLA, but you are now left with nothing. They have taken the cows, they have killed everything. And I remember, fast forward, we made it, which is those who went to Ethiopia, to Kenya, to IDPs. Most of us congregate around Kakuma refugee camp in in Kenya. About 90 to 100,000 at that time people were wow. in a refugee camp. The importance of a refugee camp is the enemy cannot attack you. You are in a different sovereign nation. Like It's like being in Canada. So how long did it take you to, to get to this refugee camp? I went through at least four IDP camp, internally displaced camp, by the time I came. The camp, my brother and others, the camp, they started around 92. That's when the camp started. I arrived probably after them about two years later. So you're like fleeing this, like we're talking about this journey being years long, like where you're... Oh, yes. Where you're literally walking, fleeing... Hiding. Yes. Going from IDPs to, to another to, to IDPs and chasing yeah. you and. So we're talking years here. Oh like, yeah. This yeah. isn't like so a, overnight, this, a few days. At least this is years. Yeah, that. The, at least yeah, at least 
the thing that I'm hearing uh, was probably starting in early 1990s, if I put the timeline. And then you have two years of just being an IDP camp and continue. And then now you have a different threat. It's not just only that one enemy. Remember, they were allies of the government in, up north. Mm -hmm. So the up north continued to, to bomb, continued to invade and all the cities. So if they invade this city today, you got to go to the next city. Mm -hmm. Until we were unfortunately forced into exile to, to Kenya. And let me just tell you, uh, a Kakuma refugee camp is a big open prison. It is a big open prison that you don't have hope because you are given a full rations for only 14 days. You're given like lentil, uh, potatoes, wheat flour, and maybe grain like corn. Actual sense, it's, it, it, you finish that full ration, so the depend on number of the head counts. So you and I could be size two. So my cousin and I, we were size, size five of us, got together. And the Lost Boy, what was so unique, we have the bond. So we would be together and we have another responsibility, like who's fashion water today? Who's cooking today? But Kakuma Rufuji camp was much better. For one, the enemy cannot come and attack us. The another thing. Because you're in another country. You're in another country. That's what is preventing yeah. us. But you have now more problem, diseases outbreaks you have vulnerability from the host community who are stigmatizing you and who are jealous because over time we get food ration i remember food being brought from us aid say from the american people and we would get food rations in the in the camp the host community at that time called the trucanas they would come at night and rob us at the gunpoint so it's interesting, the UN, UNHCR, they call it United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, think they're giving us food. But then at night we get robbed at the gunpoint because the locals are also poor. Mm -hmm. And they're like, why should you have this? So this, you, you, we have different level of threats. Diseases, you're just hopeless. You, yeah. Your world is upside down. You don't. You cannot move freely. But you know, in this world, you don't know who is acting on your behalf. And this is where the process of coming to the United States started in 1998. To come here, people were saying, if we can be described as tired, poor, we basically met every single category of vulnerability and people that, that don't have hope. And, yeah, go ahead. So you're, you're, you're now taking us to 1998 where, uh, uh, yeah, I'd like to get to, to where, you know, how you came to the United States. Yeah, so... In so how long, in, uh, by this time, so you've, you've fled Sudan, you've gone to Kenya, I think you even went to Ethiopia. Yeah, just time, at the right? Ethiopia border yeah. br briefly, but I didn't spend a lot of my time, my, most of my time was in the Kakuma Refugee Camp. All right, and this, so we're talking almost like, how many years now from the time where... So your, at your this time... were abducted to, to where... 1998, where you're looking to come to the United States. So by the time, up to even 2000, I would say it's it's almost 10 years. 10 years. Yeah, in a most of them in the Kakuma Refugee Camp. So 10 years, either like fleeing, walking, 
as they called it, the yes. Lost Boys yes. uh, March, um, being in refugee camps, ten years. Yes, ten years. Okay, so now now we're here. 10 so years. All right. and in the in the Kakuma refugee camp, people start learning about our story, and this is where the United States government and its people had. Is uh, this when you got dubbed as the Lost Boys? Like the, yeah, this, this is how this is how the word "lost boy" is being termed. Yeah. So in '98, the process started, and that is register your your story. You tell your story, you write it down, and you send it. And we send that story '98 or 2000. Didn't even hear a thing. And I learned later that there was a there was a bipartisan bill passed in the United States Congress by saying that if we bring these lost boys, if we give them hope, these people will be able to continue to give back to their country and they will be educated and go back. Well, I'm grateful for those people. And it was incredible because this has to go through the legislative through our U.S. Congress, and I'm happy to report that it was a bipartisan bill. And I joke now in today's world how it's hard to get anything bipartisan in, yes, yes. in, in the Congress right now. So yeah. I always want to emphasize bipartisan bill because the, both Democrat and Republican actually agreed on the Lost Boys to come here because it was a good thing. And that always resonated with the American that I, I know. So we started the process in 98. Never heard after two years what happened. And then in early 2000, the process started where you, you come and you be interviewed by the lawyers. And those lawyers, you got to pray that they have a nice sleep because they, <laughs> they have a good night's sleep because... Your life really depends on them, whatever they say. These they are the people it. making the determination of whether or not you will... Yes, these die. are the people who can let you know whether you come to the United States or not. Uh -huh. So after you have the interview, mostly they were lawyers. There are two groups. So you're around maybe 14, 15? Uh, around 14, okay. 15, yeah. You started fleeing around 6. Yeah. yeah so now right. we're talking about... Hmm, People being interviewed, and remember, our English was very limited. I didn't know how to write, so I was relying on my cousin, who knew how to write back then. I don't even know how he wrote this story or not. And that story you wrote in '98, the paper is right there, and you're being quizzed on. We don't remember. You could sit down and let somebody write your story, but the difficult part is. It was like two years, and we never heard back. Mm -hmm. Now you're being told, like, and they literally go word for word what is written. So the problem is, if my cousin written what I was saying, and I don't remember exactly, it looked like I'm lying. Gotcha. And some people failed. So not only go for interview, there are two processes. There's something called majors. Majors are the people who are 18 and above. You come to this country... You have to you have to pay Uncle Sam back for the for the airfare ticket that you have taken from 
If you're 18 and over? Yes. But then there's another group called unaccompanied minors. And these are the people 18 and under. That's you. That would be where I was, and you are required to have a foster family. All right. So not only now you get interviewed, you have to pass a medical history test. You better not have any kind of sexual sexual transmitted diseases. You are not coming. Mm -hmm. And don't even think about, do you have HIP or not? They can do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. You cannot come. So you do the TB test. So I remember being accepted. And for us, it was just by grace of God, to be honest. There were six of us Mm -hmm. in the form. Three people are 18 and above, including my brother. Three people were unaccompanied minors, which is 18 and and below. We went to interview. I remember the interviewer, uh, the person that was doing conducting the interview, never asked those who are under the age of 18 and below. They never asked me a single question. And two other cousins, no. But the people, the three people, including my cousin, my brother, and another cousin, they were the one being asked. Well, we know how to know you are accepted to the U.S., you would get the envelope. And normally, you have to tilt it toward the sun. It's so hot in Kakumorofajik, and we're talking over 100 degrees. But when you tilt the, the, the envelope toward the sun and you see a picture, Start celebrating because you're coming to the U.S. What's the picture of? So it's just they probably take the two-by-two pictures Mm -hmm. and they insert it there in your your file, whether you fail or not. This is how you get the result back. So people figure out, before you even open the the envelope, you tilt it toward the sun and you just see the picture. Two-by-two picture, you start celebrating you are automatically accepted to the U.S. But if you tilt it and there's no picture, it's a bad day for you. Do you remember your day? when you? I remember those days. Here's the problem. There was six. So the good news is if you're on a company minor under the age of 18, you, I'm allowed to add anybody I want. I could add like five, six, seven people to huh. come on my file. But if you are 18 and above, no. Right. So... I remember me and my cousin were one file and we were under the 18. So we add my brother and we add another two people. Well, the unfortunate part is we tilted and we opened and it turned out six, three out of six fail, three out of six pass. I don't know how you explain that, including my brother who, anyway, eventually made it to the U.S. and my cousin made it here. I made, made it to Australia. My cousin made it to the U.S. My other cousin made it to Australia with a different form. But they just tell you it was not an easy process to come here. And once you are accepted to come to the U.S., now we were on a company minor. We need family members, uh, family to sponsor us. Guess what? Mm. Waited for six months. There was no one except us to be in their homes. And it was hurting, and I'm like, Please, somebody, just, I, I remember praying so hard. And after six months, we have this lady from Michigan who was part of uh, 
sometimes when you come here, you either be part, there's like under the State Department, there are different agencies. Most of them are faith-based organizations who sponsor people like Lutheran Social Services, Catholic Charity, uh, ethnic Christian. There's a lot of agencies mm -hmm. that could... Um, I was sponsored by Lutheran Social Services of Michigan through my foster mom. So my foster mom from Michigan sponsored us. And I remember the excitement to be able to be accepted in Michigan. So I came, and it was really cold. So you go from Sudan, 100-degree refugee yes. camps, to Michigan. Yes. So <laughs> this, here's my itinerary. They say, Jacob, you are coming from Kakuma refugee camp to Nairobi to Amsterdam. Amsterdam to New York, New York to Chicago, Chicago to Lansing, and Lansing to a small village called Weberville. <laughs> that was my itinerary. But uh, I'm just saying all this, that people who are not familiar with refugee status, it, it's a lengthy process. Yeah. It is difficult um, to come here. We are probably 1% of the people. So the solution, now we have over 82 million people who are forcefully displaced. From the Civil uh, War. From, uh, who are forcefully displaced either from natural disaster, either displaced from, from, from wars right now globally. And the solution to it is but by the time you leave, like I left Mar, my village, it is the average of any refugee. You leave your country is around 17 years before you even go back, and that's if you can go back. So there are three solutions to mostly these type of, uh, of refugee crisis. Either A, they have something called local integration. Wherever you are in the host community, is be able to try to, to integrate with the host community and be able to get a job and be able to be accepted because of that. That's, that often doesn't happen. Like you can see the conflict of crates. Sure. Even here in this country, people feel like, you know, a refugee or a migrant is taking our job. Mm -hmm. It's a different argument. Or the local people are not accepting of the refugee. Mm -hmm. So you have, it doesn't happen a lot. Uganda is trying and now Kenya is trying, but it's not the perfect system. Then you have something called uh, repatriation of the refugee back to their country. The reality is how often would they go back? It's yeah. very limited. Yeah. It's not that often. Also, there's another solution is being resettled in a devolved countries like the U.S., which is 1%. So these are the conditions sometimes some of us are in. And you're going through the resettlement option. Uh, yeah, that's how I came here, and it's very lucky. Uh, that's what the Afghans and everybody's coming through mm -hmm. now. It's a resettlement option, which is few people coming. So I came in 2001 when I was 15 to America. So I've been now, uh, wow, 20 years in America. And that was really the beginning of what I call the new life. And when I came here, I was in a foster care. I was in a small community uh, called Weberville. I was the only black uh, minority person in there with my cousin. And we transitioned to a different challenges, right? It's not a refugee anymore, and the culture shock was unbelievable. Uh, I remember the wow. first time in New York, I almost electrocuted myself. We had no idea. It's like being being taken back to uh, to all this, uh, 
all Renaissance times, time of, you know, uh, Macbeth or time of, you know, it's like there was no technology. I remember just even the concept of turning on and off the light. It was so foreign to us. Mm -hmm. uh, the concept of sleeping on the mattress, that is so soft. I remember one mattress is like, wow, we were impressed we have a mattress. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, so, mom, could we, me and my cousin, sleep on the same bed? He's like, no, 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 you have your own. And then now you you just getting into how fortunate we are in this country. Like yes, we are soda, food you can eat. I remember my first food was pizza, <laughs> going to uh, Little Caesars, uh -huh. and um, it was just unbelievable. And then I started eating salad, which was a little bit offensive. Me and my mother debated, and because the salad related to some of the leave of the trees that we ate and how we survive in the wilderness. I'm like, so mom, excuse me, why are you giving us grass again? <laughs> and she's like, no, no, it's not grass, it's, it's, it's salad. It was just, and then she would give us. Um, More Americans need to eat grass. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> she would give us uh, uh, apple juice. And in that apple juice. So sweet. It's so sweet, but we're like, hey, look, so you're giving us urine? Some of us drink the urine. We're like, no, no, it's not urine. It's apple juice. But Didn't the you have to sometimes survive on urine while you guys were just yeah, drinking? yeah, yeah. Because in order to, to to make your throat thirst, and these are the thing clean, yeah. unclean water. Yeah. And so when I came here, it was a totally change from, for the first time ever, I now think of education before and for the right reason. I always ask people, think about this. Okay, so you are into nonprofit and you are in humanitarian. I remember people would bring exercise books and pencil and to all this, and it was a well intended. And I'm like, are these people out of their mind? All I need is a hot food. Why would you give me a pencil? So sometimes this is what I appreciate about what we call the need assessment. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, is when you, 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 you really assess the need of the population. And sometimes we don't know that. Uh, sometimes For the right reason. I'm not blaming the person who gives access because that's what they think is what we like. Unfortunately, what we like was hot food. So you're coming at this from like, I'm just trying to survive every day. Yeah. And now you get, you know, transported to a, a completely different country, completely different culture. Yeah. where you know we have a lot of that survival needs already met and yeah. we can be in a place where we can start you know thinking about education which is a foreign concept to you at this point you know, it was a foreign you. concept because yeah. educate formal education was not even in my book not even an option but think about it you know I always ask people as I was describing my journey through all these things different priorities come at different time my priority back then, was just, can I eat? Mm -hmm. You've been a refugee camp. Now, I always challenge people to try to guess what would be my priority once I come to America. Well, come to find that you can eat as much as you want, whether you have money or not, at least we have a government system yeah. that could assist yeah. with hot meal. Yeah. You have opportunities to, to, to go to school, and for the first time, my priorities changes that 
I have seen the suffering of the people, especially lack to uh, lack of health care. People who were um, dying are not necessarily dying from gunshot wound. It was lack of access to to health facilities, and now the difficulty to now we have different what we call the subpopulation. Now people with disabilities in all these conditions. If we have to think about it, the difficulty, think about it. My stepmother at this time was very elderly, so she cannot run as fast as she could from enemy. Um, people with disabilities at that time couldn't run as fast or think as fast and being separated, so they probably suffer the most. Now, even within the refugee services, you need in this type of environment, it's a survivor of the fittest. It's a surviving of the fittest, who is the strongest, who, and, and the blind can can see where to go, and you can pull them, and mm -hmm. you can imagine the, the level, even we don't have a hard data to back it up, but I can attest to you, these are the people who are always the victim, the victim of the victim, because at least some of us would would run, mm -hmm. would see where they're going. So if you're blind, also if you have a physical disabilities, you, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to, to, to go. So a lot of the people who who depend, one thing I like about my society, we are it's a collective effort. So you cannot just leave. I know a colleague of mine who had disabilities or at later point has disability through health, particularly uh, there was a disease called Rickett. Rickett, yeah. That really made a lot of people uh, disabled through, to, through that disease and through different trauma through different people go mental health illness and how we deal with it. there was no treatment but what was it's a it's a how we make each other comfortable mm -hmm. and 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 so even now in a humanitarian setting in my experience even this idp camp that i'm we are providing healthcare services even in kakuma refugee camp you always have lack of services to the people with disabilities. They're going to be the people at the lowest bottom. If their average person is here, think about it. Run, they cannot run faster. Go fetch water, go get something at the speed. It's They are always in disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And there's no like, nowadays I go to any building and you have a nice machine. Water fountain. Yeah. A water fountain. No, but you have accessibility of... Yeah. Disabilities code that help you in the society. Sure. No, there's nothing. It's in a refugee camp, in walking. So this was different subpopulation has different challenges yeah. within our group. Okay, we're gonna break right here. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, 
advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.